Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Boyce and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining me from Florida. You're in Florida today, right? Just got back from Paris last week, and I'm in Florida now, but it's windy. And yes. Well, we have uh, Gilbert on, Gilbert Harrison. And Gilbert is the author of a new book called Deal Junkie. And uh, I want to let the listeners know a tad bit about you, Gilbert. He was born in 1940 in New York City. His family moved shortly thereafter to New Haven, Connecticut, where he was raised. He attended the Wharton School and then the School of Law, both at the University of Pennsylvania. His first job in law took him back to New York City, where he practiced corporate and securities laws. And after moving to Philadelphia, he joined Blank Rome as an associate lawyer. Several years later, he and his fellow fellow lawyers struck out on their own, founding, is it Finico in the early 70s, in the 1970s. And uh, from there, kind of the rest is history, as they say. So let me, um, if you would, if you would, Gilbert, you know, look, you're the deal junkie. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your family history, which I thought was fascinating in the book. Um, earning your law degree and then the formation of Financo, and then ultimately the sale of this to Shearson Lehman American Express. And if you would, I think that kind of sets the tone um, for us continuing on with the interview because it gives people an idea about you. Sure. Um, I guess the best thing to say is I was always an entrepreneur from early age. Um, when I was 10 years old, I lived around the corner in New Haven, making 10 cents on a 50-cent program. I then parked cars at my friend's house next door and made $10 a program. Um, I was on junior achievement. Um, at uh, I, I went to the Wharton School, and then the summer before the Wharton School, I started a whole charter flight service to Europe, made uh, $10,000 or $12,000. This is the 19... Uh, 62, 61, 62, um, when it's hard to believe, um, when I started practicing law in New York, uh, three and a half years later, I was making $7,200. Um, so that I've always been interested in entrepreneurship, building things and so on. When practicing law, I was doing corporate and securities law and took companies public. It did mergers and acquisitions. And I always, however, loved the people interaction and negotiation of these deals as opposed to the pure legal work, which led me to leave the practice of law in 1971 uh, to start Financo um, as a uh, boutique investment bank. Well, Financo was quite a success. And then you sold to Shearson Lehman American Express. And, you know, in one of your chapters, because look, you're the deal junkie. You're the guy who's been out there working with all these retailers, doing mergers, doing acquisitions, and everything from both a legal standpoint, but even the psychology of the deal. You are like the uh, psychologist of, of, of deals. And you speak about big egos of buyers and sellers in your chapter entitled Bringing Some of the Largest Egos Ever to walk the planet to the bargaining table. And you talk about your experiences with Les Wexner and Milton Peach. If you would, tell the story about what you learned about the art of deal-making in actually working with these two gentlemen, because 
they were probably as good or better deal, deal makers than you were. <laughs> Richer than me, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, and at the time, I mean, unfortunately, it's what it's unfortunate what's happened to Les today because he's really been dishonored uh, because of the Epstein thing. But he was one of the great merchant princes, and so was Milton. Uh, Milton was a retailer that had his hands on, knew every bit of his merchandise, knew every bit of his store profits uh, on all three, four, five, six hundred, seven hundred stores <clears throat> that he operated uh, before the days of pure computers. He used to get printouts and uh, and would look over every single page and do his own analysis, which was fantastic. Uh, 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 egos are something that I've seen with every, uh, probably every great person, um, whether it's because they think they're better than everybody else, in some cases it's because they're insecure, uh, which is interesting. Um, and uh, I won't tell you who I think is insecure, but there's a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Sure. And, and I would, and I would, I might venture to say there might, we might have had somebody in political office that was that way <laughs> most recently. And I won't even say any names. Everybody knows who I'm talking about. There's no question. There's no question about that. And I knew him. I knew him fairly well. And in fact, uh, I had an interesting experience with him because he called me into his office one day and said, I want you to develop a whole licensing program for me. And we put together a whole package to give to him. And he, uh, he said, this is fantastic. Let's go to work. So I said, uh, that's fine. But before I go to work, we need to discuss my fee. And he said, fee, the honor and art of working with me is going to bring you more success than you've ever dreamed. <laughs> I love it. Uh, now, you know, I was talking. The, the egos, by the way, the egos <laughs> with this other person, Les Wexner, and the former president, uh, was even more interesting because I was having lunch, and I think I mentioned that. Do I mention this in my book? I'm, I was having lunch with Milton Petrie and uh, Les Wexner, and Les said he just came from. Uh, his, his yacht, um, which was 100 and, uh, 210 feet. And uh, Milton said, well, that's interesting because I was just on Donald uh, Trump's yacht and it's 215 feet. And so <laughs> we see Les again in about another month. And he says, Milton, Gilbert, I want you to know my boat is now 220 feet. <laughs> he, he, he added five feet <laughs> to make it larger. Well, and egos... Let's say egos in your world were something you learned to manage very skillfully. And you're to be commended for that because uh, from coming from your law side and then coming from the side of you that had to manage that, that was really quite skillful of you. And you speak about this merchant prince, uh, Martin Traub, and you tell a little about, if you tell us a little about Martin and how he recreated Bloomingdale's. Uh, what you learned and what he taught you about business life and becoming a great leader. Because in your eyes, you thought that Martin Traub was a pretty good leader. You know, I've met an awful lot of what I'll call merchant princes over the years um, from Wexner, who I talked about, and uh, Les Wexner and Mickey Drexler and Don Fisher and um, 
Andre Mayer from Gallery Lafayette, uh, and the Stives from Marks and Spencer. I can keep going on and on and on. But certainly the closest relationship I had was with Marvin. And he truly loved retail. He truly loved the customer. He loved the product. He loved being an innovator. Uh, he was just a pleasure uh, to know and to work with. And he was a very hard-working person. Um, in fact, um, uh, when I first started working with him, he had retired from Bloomingdale's, and he joined uh, he joined Financo and um, uh, as a senior advisor. And um, uh, he says, we have a breakfast meeting tomorrow morning at 7.30. So I said, Marvin, that's fine, but I have my trainer at 7. He says, we well, use the trainer at 6 uh, because that way you'll be ready at 7.30. That's what I do. So, I mean, he would, he would start working. He would, uh, I go, uh, we would take the Concorde to London or Paris working on some projects. He'd literally get off the plane and go right to a meeting. I, who was 20 or 30 years younger than him, I'd be tired. I'd want to go to the hotel. I'd want to shower and uh, lie down for an hour. Anyway, you learned a lot from him. You know, and you stated that over the past 50 years, uh, you may have worked with hundreds, maybe thousands of deals, first as a lawyer, and then I said investment banker and financial advisor. What are some of the deals and how could they have been prevented from falling apart if the leaders had shifted their perspective and shifted to a win-win mentality in your estimation, um, Gilbert? I wish I could truly answer that question because it's probably totally, totally frustrating. And um, how do you how do you prevent uh, these things from happening? And it's hard because you have to decide you either want to become aggressive and sometimes if you're aggressive, uh, it annoys the person. If you're not aggressive, you don't get the deal done. You have to keep pushing. You have to keep giving, speaking to them about the reasons. And it's, it, it was a very frustrating experience. And you push too hard and, and the client or the other party will say, oh, all you're interested in is your fee. You're not interested in the deal. And the fact that matters, if you look over the years, I probably told people not to do more deals than I told them to do deals for reasons. So, you know, uh, Gilbert, you used to have these annual events called uh, the Fininco, Fininco CEO Forum and Dinner. Yes. And you invited the who's who of senior retail executives to be on the forum. Um, what did you learn from these forums and how did hosting these events really propel your business? Because I saw pictures in the book with you and all the guys sitting around and it obviously looked like you were having a good time, but you, you did them with an intention of basically uh, creating more deals. The Financo, the Financo CEO dinner was probably the most important thing that I could have done from a marketing point of view. Um, while we were a boutique firm and known in the industry, uh, we certainly didn't have the name, the recognition or the manpower that a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley or some of the large investment banks had. So how do I build up my name? How do I build up our client base? We started with the NRF as a very small dinner um, that had six people at it that expanded to the last dinner I had. Um, we had about 350 people at the seminar and over 120 people at dinner, which was by invitation only. 
And the whole purpose was to bring together retailers after the Christmas season to have them discuss what had happened, uh, what their views were, where things were going in the previous year, and where they were looking forward to go in the current year coming up. And we had, in many cases, some very frank, interesting discussions. In some other cases, uh, there were CEOs that couldn't tell too much uh, because they were public companies and they were in a quiet period because their sales hadn't been released. The, the event was extremely well attended. People that I didn't know would want to come. Um, the most annoying thing was that clients or potential clients that had chosen to go to other banks were insulted. They weren't invited. They begged, begged to come and I wouldn't let them. Uh, but all in all, it was a really interesting way for retailers that were in town for the National Retail Federation when it was the thing to do to get together. Um, yeah. For us, it was a very important event because it created business. It created not only awareness of us, um, of the firm, uh, but also led to many deals that more than paid for the dinner itself. It, it was something I'm very proud of. Well, you should be. And, you know, the other thing that I remember reading in the story is your long history with uh, Wharton School, and you're very proud of that, and you should be. And you received a BS in economics from Wharton in 1962 and an LLD, an LLD in law in 65. And then you also taught a course called Management 49 uh, when there, you were there. And I know you felt good about teaching that because you mentioned it in the book. And then you state that it's been 40 years since you taught there, but many lessons you wish you could have imparted on the graduating students. Um, speak with us about some of those lessons, because after you left the course, you went out and got involved in all this other stuff. And this is the real hard life of learning, uh, the real hard lessons. What are some of those lessons if my listeners today are trying to put together a deal or trying to successfully do a merger acquisition or trying to successfully create a succession plan for themselves? What would you tell them as somebody who's had tons of experience with this? By the way, uh, this advice is not only for merger deals. Um, it's for any type of business in many ways, although it can be personalized. Um, first of all, confidentiality is essential. Um, there are too many situations and opportunities that have been lost because somebody, in many cases at a lower level, have broken um, what is needed to be done. Um, second, you have to know your client. You have to know what they're interested in, why they're doing a deal. Why does a buyer want to buy something? Is it because his business is slowing down because he wants to expand geographically um, and so on? Why does the seller want to sell? Does he need the capital? You really, as you mentioned before about being a psychiatrist or a psychoanalyst, that's what you'd have to do all the time um, in this business. Um, chemistry is extremely important in a deal. Um, if you're working on selling a company, you better make sure uh, that if the uh, buyer wants the seller to retain, uh, that the uh, that the business is such that it can be retained. If you're buying it just to buy locations, who cares? But if you're buying it for management, you better make sure that you take care of the management, you give them the incentives to keep them. What you don't want to do is pay an entrepreneur millions and millions of dollars and then have him leave the day after the deal 
uh, because he's the one that knows the business. Um, uh, we had a situation a number of years ago where you talk about ego. Um, we had sold a company to a UK company, and uh, they decided that, that they were going to get rid of the entire management of the company and bring in their own people from the UK to run it. Uh, guess what? Uh, three years later, the business went bankrupt um, and was uh, closed down. So all of these things, and probably one of the most essential things you've got to understand is you got to love what you do. Um, I say this to people in class. I say this to the young people who work for me. Um, uh, it, it, it's fun to be an investment banker. It can be exciting, although there's still a lot of work that people need to do. Um, and there's a lot of grunt work. It's all isn't just getting on a Concord and flying someplace or going to a city. How many cities have I visited where you fly in, you have the meeting, you don't go out, uh, you don't go to the museum, you don't have dinner at the places that you do. Um, so you really have to like, you have to be able to take the pressure. You have to be able to understand how the values are and not screw up your family. I've seen too many people that have gotten divorced uh, because um, uh, the uh, banker loses insight of what's important to him. And look, at the end of the day, uh, while success in business and money is important, uh, if people don't believe their family is still the most important thing, you got some real problems. Good, good advice. I mean, I think uh, most importantly, the last bit of advice, which is look at your priorities in life. What is most important to you? And get those straight. Um, you know, in an, in 77, you wrote in the book, you were hired by the owner of Ann Taylor Stores. Uh, what's Richard's last name? Levinsky? Richard Liebeskind. Liebeskind. Oh. To sell Ann Taylor. Uh, what you learn, what did you learn about uh, growing a brand as a result of selling Ann Taylor? Well, I thought you were, what, what, what did I learn about Richard Liebeskind and why the deal? I'll tell you about that real quickly. Sure. Uh, we, we, we went to see the uh, CEO of a multi-billion dollar company who was interested in buying Ann Taylor. And we walk into his office in Chicago. The guy pats Richard on his back and says, welcome to Chicago, Dick. And Richard turns around and says, my name is Richard. <laughs> um, as much as he wanted this business, the CEO called me the next day and said, there's no way this, this is something I can't have somebody that's working for me that says something like that. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, growing a brand, I mean, when we sold Dan Taylor originally, finally to Garfinkel Brooks Brothers, I think they had 10 stores. Um, uh, the product was great. The merchant merchandise was great. Um, and it grew to where it was 50 stores. When um, Allied Stores uh, owned it, I think they had six, 700 stores. Uh, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, things fell apart uh, during the Allied deal, and it was spun off. It's run some problems um, over the years. Um, it's lost its insight. Um, it had a phenomenal shoe business that they screwed up. Um, and uh, today... It is nowhere near where it was in terms of product capability when when I sold it. And uh, there have been many businesses where they just haven't grown. Uh, they, they grew dramatically. Then they start growing too fast. Uh, sometimes the pressure is on to keep expanding. If it's a public company, your earnings need to go up 10, 15 percent every year. So they start uh, building more stores. They start 
start expanding and they take their eye off of what's important. Yeah, which is uh, the brand, which is coming out with good products and which is retaining and attracting, and I would say more importantly, retaining good customers that have brand loyalty. And that leads us to this question, actually. It's a great segue, uh, Gilbert. Speaking as someone with a history in the industry, knowing the volatility and the uncertainty that retail has been dealing with, um, where do you see the opportunities for new startups and for mergers for existing retail brands as we move into what I would call a blended world of online and brick and mortar? Well, first of all, uh, the world and the customer base still is looking for new, exciting products. They're looking for not the new Me Too. Mm -hmm. um, but they don't want things that are off the wall, but they think but they want things that are different, that are interesting. Um, uh, you haven't seen to an extent the growth of some of these new businesses, the way, for instance, uh, uh, Home Depot or Lowe's have grown from uh, being, you know, just hardware stores into multi-unit stores, uh, the way some of the specialty stores have grown. Um, uh, it, it's hard to come up. I mean, take a look. Whoever thought that uh, uh, Apple would be what it is today or Amazon would be for the way it is. I mean, the insight that came from uh, these uh, unbelievable entrepreneurs, wonderful people have created whole new businesses, which goes me into the way that changes. Perhaps one of the biggest changes going on is uh, e-commerce and the way global e-commerce has grown and the way globalization of businesses has grown. And now you talk about the mega stuff that's going on uh, and the live streaming. It's, uh, it, it's incredible the way new things are developing. Um, sure, they're not new retail formats in the sense that you're still saying the same old product, uh, but there's new ways to reach the customer because the customer is changing. Uh, the other yeah. thing which I, I need to really put out is one of the biggest changes is companies have realized they have to give the consumer what they want, what right. the consumer wants, not what the company wants. And that's been perhaps the biggest change that I've seen over time. Well, I think you mentioned it. Uh, you look at Amazon runs a live streaming, uh, Home Shopping Network runs live streaming, all of these companies that are selling retail women's clothing, selling men's clothing. I'm finishing up a video call. That was Tommy Hilfiger. <laughs> uh, Sorry. So, so all of these people basically who are literally, uh, you know, you look at online streaming, you mentioned it. And it, a lot of this stuff is occurring, as you know, 24-7. Uh, it, it's literally being aired all the time catching people in the middle of the night, in the middle of the day, whatever it is, to retail their items and then ship them uh, via UPS, uh, FedEx, and so on. So the whole world has morphed. But in 2012, you sold Venanco and created your own succession plan. For someone who has created succession plans, put together mergers and acquisitions, what advice would you like to leave the listeners with who might be considering their succession and or sale of their company to a larger entity? First of all, be careful. Um, remember, you've built a company and you want to make sure it ends up in the right hands. You want to make sure the chemistry is there and you lo don't lose your people. You want to make sure the product stays. You want to make sure the company uh, continues. 
or maybe you don't care. Maybe you just want the money and you want to go away. But uh, trying to bring in the right person to take over the business is very difficult for an entrepreneur. It's probably more difficult for the entrepreneur than it is for the professional manager because the entrepreneur has always kept his hands on everything and doesn't want to let go. Um, uh, I would also say in many very successful cases, after the CEO has the new succession plan, the new CEOs in place, uh, the old CEO will leave, will drift off into the sunset or drift off to do something else so that uh, he's not standing over watch the way he should, uh, the way he would want to with the new management. He doesn't let him do its own thing. However, many times you find out they may have to come in because the guy has done the wrong thing and the business has suffered and the board will throw them out and ask the old people to come back in. I think it's different with succession, whether it's a private company or a public company. Uh, but um, uh, you have to do your homework. You have to check out who your successor is going to be. You have to check out what his reputation has been. Don't get fooled. It can be very, very difficult if it's not done correctly. Well, Gilbert, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth. Uh, for all my listeners, we'll have a link uh, to the book on Amazon. Uh, it's called Deal Junkie. Gilbert Harrison and the Deal Junkie uh, has given us some great insights, some great wisdom about putting deals together. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for taking the time with our listeners. I'll be back in touch with you. Gilbert, I, I know you've got to get going. So thanks so much for your time. Greg, thanks. Greg, if you need something to fill in, just let me know and I can be with you tomorrow or the next day. Okay, okay we'll, we'll take a look at this video and see how it all turned out. Okay. Perfect. Thanks so right. much. That was fun. Take Thanks. care. Bye. Bye-bye.